This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Dr. Craig, welcome. Thank you. It's, it's great to, to be with you. you. It's great to have you today. We're thrilled that you're here. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig is a visiting scholar of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology and professor of philosophy here at Houston Christian University. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Phil Talon at HCU for reaching out and saying, hey, could you all host him and would you like to? And I said, absolutely, we would love to have you. So thank you for being back here today. He and his wife, Jan, have two children. Uh, at the age of 16, as a junior in high school, he first heard the message of the gospel of Jesus and it changed his life. He gave his life to Christ then. He pursued an undergraduate degree at Wheaton College in 1971 with a Bachelor of Arts there, graduated study in graduate studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, and then a PhD from the University of uh, Birmingham in England, and then a doctorate of theology from the University of Munich in Germany. And uh, from 1980 to 1986, he taught philosophy of religion at Trinity, during which time he and Jan started their family. In 1987, they moved to Brussels, Belgium, where he pursued research at the University of Louvain until assuming his position at Talbot in 1994. Now, he's authored and edited over 30 books, and uh, I've just got to tell you, I didn't get to read all of them, uh, getting ready for <laughs> this, <didn't> want to. <laughs> but including the column Cosmological Argument, Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus, Divine Foreknowledge and Human Freedom, Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology, and God, Time, and Eternity. He's also authored over 100 articles uh, in professional journals and philosophy and theology, uh, including the Journal of Philosophy, New Testament Studies, Journal for the Study of the New Testament, and on and on and on. And I didn't get all those articles read either. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot. So good. I love that God has used you so much. And again, thank you to Houston Christian University, my alma mater, for uh, uh, creating this opportunity. And I do want to uh, plug their apologetics program. Austin Freeman, uh, the new chair of the apologetics, uh, he will be on campus today. If you are interested in just uh, finding out more about apologetics and uh, Houston Christian University, we invite you to do that. As a matter of fact, you're here in town this week to lecture uh, in the apologetics program. Tell, me, tell us a little bit about what you're doing this week. I'll be teaching a course at uh, Second Baptist okay. of Houston on arguments for the existence of God. And oh, no. so for each of the five weekdays, we'll take a different argument for God okay. and examine it in some detail and discuss it with one Amen. another. Amen. So, so in, in, as a 16-year-old, you heard the gospel of Jesus. Tell us your testimony. How did that capture your heart? And, and why did you fall in love with Jesus? And why do you follow him today? I wasn't raised in an evangelical Christian home. My family was at best nominally Christian. Uh, we never even attended church. Okay. But when I became a teenager, I began to ask what I call the big questions in life. Why am I here? Where am I going? What is the meaning of my existence? And in the search for answers, I began to attend all on my own a large church in our community. But instead of answers, what I found was a sort of social country club 
where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate, and the other high school students who pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday lived for their real God the rest of the week, which was popularity, and they would do anything in the service of that God. And that deeply bothered me because I thought, here I feel so empty Hmm. inside. And yet externally, at least, I'm leading a better life than they are, and they claim to be Christians. And I thought they're just all a bunch of hypocrites pretending to be something they're really not. And I began to grow very resentful toward the institutional church because of the phoniness that I saw. And soon, this attitude spread toward people in general. Everybody, I thought, Hmm. is a phony. They're all holding up plastic masks to the world, and the real person is cowering down Mm. inside, afraid Mm. to come out and be real. And so I began to be very hateful and resentful toward people in general. I thought, I don't need people. I, I don't want them. And I threw myself into my studies and shunned relationships with others. I was on my way, frankly, toward becoming a very alienated young man. Wow. But at the same time, during moments of introspection and honesty, when I looked into my own heart, I realized that deep down inside, Mm. I really did want to love and to be loved by others. And I realized at that moment that I was just as much a phony as they were, because here I was pretending not to need (laughs) or want people when deep down inside, I knew I really did. And so that anger turned in upon myself for my own phoniness and hypocrisy. And I don't know if you understand what this is like, but this kind of inner anger just eats away at your insides day after day, making every day miserable, another day to get through. And one day I was feeling particularly crummy, and I walked into my high school German class, and I sat down behind a girl who's one of these types, you know, that is always so happy, it just makes you sick. Let's go. I love that. And I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around, and I said to her, Sandy, what are you always so happy about anyway? And she said, it's because I'm saved. Hmm. And I said, you're what? And she said, I know Jesus Christ is my personal savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him really living in your heart. Amen. And I said, well, what do you want to do a thing like that for? (laughs) And she said, because he loves you, Bill. And that just hit me Mm. like a ton of bricks. Here I was so filled with anger and hate inside. And she said there was someone who really loved me. And who was it but the God of the universe? And that thought just staggered me Mm. to think that the God of the universe could love me. Bill Craig, that worm down there on that speck of dust called planet Earth, I, I just couldn't take it in. Well, I went home that night and I got a New Testament that had been given to me when the Gideons visited our grade school in the fifth grade. And for the first time, I opened it and began to read it. And as I did so, I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. There was a wisdom about this man's teaching 
that I had never encountered before. And especially, there was an authenticity about his life that wasn't characteristic of these people who claimed to be his followers in that local church that I was going to. And I knew then I couldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And as I read the New Testament, I understood what my problem was. My sin had spiritually separated me from God so that I was alienated Mm. from God. So of course God seemed unreal and distant to me. But the message of the New Testament was that God had sent his son to die for Mm. my sins, to reconcile me to God, and to give me that relationship with him that I was created to have. Well, I went through about six months of the most intense soul-searching I have ever been through. And to make a long story short, at the end of that time, I just came to the end of my rope. And one night, about 8 o'clock in the evening, I just cried out to God and just cried out all of the anger and the bitterness that was in me. And as I did, I felt this tremendous infusion of joy, like a balloon being blown up and blown up until it was ready to burst. And I rushed outside, and I remember it was a warm uh, September Midwestern evening. And as I looked up at the sky, I could see the Milky Way from horizon to horizon. And as I looked at the stars, I thought, God, I've come to know God. And that moment changed my whole life because I had thought enough about this message during those six months to realize that if Bill Craig ever became a Christian, I could do nothing less than spend my entire life spreading this message among mankind. Because if this is really the truth, if it's really the truth, then this is the greatest news Mm. ever announced. And so my call to vocational Christian Ministry was simultaneous with Hallelujah. my conversion to Christ. Amen. What a blessing. How about that? I mean, I'm, what a glorious well, story. Thank you. Praise God. So I hear, I heard that, really, I heard you say, I didn't love myself. I, did you hate yourself? Were you just that angry with yourself? Yes. I, 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 there was that attitude, I think, of self-loathing because I thought of, I was just as much a hypocrite and a phony as everybody else. And so when I did hear the message of the gospel and learned that according to the New Testament, I was on my way to hell. Funny thing is I had no problem with that at all. Wow. I thought, yeah, that's what yeah. I deserve. I sensed the so you were, you were that self-aware of what was happening within your, the inner turmoil and, yeah. and the gospel came and absolutely revolutionized your life. So how, how did you get into, so vocational call to ministry, how did you get into the discipline of philosophy, philosophy of religion, theology, the, mm-hmm. the road that you've gone on? When I graduated from high school, um, I went to Wheaton College, right? which is a Christian college in the Chicago area. And the emphasis at Wheaton was upon having a Christian world and life view Mm -hmm. that integrates your faith and your learning. And they taught us at Wheaton that we don't need to put our faith in one pocket and our brains in the other pocket and never let them see the light of day at the same time. But that rather as Christians, we could have a Christian perspective on the arts, on the sciences, uh, on philosophy, on history, mathematics, and so forth. And so it was at Wheaton that I acquired the vision of sharing the gospel 
in the context of giving an intellectual mm. defense Amen. of the Christian faith. And in pursuit of that vision, I did go then to seminary and then eventually to doctoral studies right. Right. in England and Germany. And the Lord has given you favor. You've deba debated some of the greatest minds in the world uh, on the existence of God, atheism, theism, uh, creation. I mean, all sorts of, of topics, the divinity of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ and its significance. Let's discuss the journey. If we could, I, I, as a pastor, I'm here like, okay, what serves our time well? And I'd love to discuss the journey that someone may take from atheism to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And what are some of these big rocks, some of these massive topics, maybe the things that keep them from taking another step and, and moving forward? Uh, so let's talk about the, the definition of a theist okay. versus, and, and then the definition of an atheist. So we, we're, we're beginning with some good terminology. Would you share that with sure. us? An atheist is a person who believes that God does not exist. And so a theist is someone who believes that God does exist. Now, this distinction is really important to keep in mind because on the contemporary scene, a lot of atheists want to redefine what atheism is so that they don't have any burden of proof to support the truth okay. of their worldview. And they'll say atheism just means an absence of belief in God. It doesn't mean that you believe that God does not exist. It just means that you don't have a belief in God, hmm. and therefore they have nothing to prove. It's not a view. It, it's just a psychological state of mind lacking hmm. a God belief. And this trivializes atheism uh, because then it's neither true nor false. Uh, little babies would be atheists by this definition. Hmm. My right. cat. Muff is an atheist because Muff lacks a belief in God. And so that, that's a real trivialization. We still want to know, does God exist right. or does he not? And so we mustn't let atheists get away with shirking their share of the burden of proof by simply redefining terms. Right, right. So this week you're going to unpack the, the moral or the arguments for God's existence, Some of right? Them, yes. So we have cosmological, teleological, ontological, mm -hmm. moral arguments. Which of these do you best feel explains God's existence and why? And then how important is it for believers who want to be able to defend their faith as well as influence others to come to know Christ to be able to interface with these arguments? I would say that the arguments for God's existence tend to focus on particular properties or attributes of God. Right. So, for example, the cosmological argument emphasizes God's transcendence and mm. power in creating the universe. The teleological argument emphasizes God's intelligence okay. in designing the universe. The moral argument right. emphasizes God's character morally in grounding moral values and, and duties. And so they focus on particular properties. But if you want to know the argument that best explains the full concept of God, it would be the ontological argument, which attempts to show that God is a maximally great right. being right. who possesses all of these properties that make up perfection, like omnipotence, omniscience, uh, moral perfection, and so forth. Now, having said that, that's not the same as saying that the ontological argument is the most effective 
or most persuasive argument. On the contrary, it's probably the least persuasive. I, my experience is that the most persuasive argument for God's existence is the moral argument, because I think people tend to sense that without God as a moral absolute, there is no objective standard right. for right, right and wrong, good and evil, and yet clearly we do see moral evil in the world, such as the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas yes. recently, yes. Or, or moral goods as well. And so the moral argument is probably the most persuasive, though it focuses mainly on God's moral character. Now, why is it important that Christians who are interested in sharing their faith and defending their faith be familiar with these arguments? I think the reason is that we live in an increasingly secular culture where it can no longer be taken for granted that people believe that God exists. And they will often ask you, what reason is there to think that God exists? There's no evidence for God's existence. And if you can just list a few of the arguments, you will be far, far ahead of what most right. Christians uh, right. can do, even without explaining. They're just knowing the names of some of them is sometimes enough for the non-believer. But I want to add one thing here, Pastor, to your question. I think it's important to know and be familiar with these arguments, even if you're not interested in sharing and defending your faith. Say you're a Christian that isn't particularly burdened for evangelism okay. and discipleship. I think you also need to be aware of these arguments. Why? Because if you have children you're apt to lose your youth mm. if you can't give them good reasons to believe what mm. they believe. So if you don't want your youth to walk away, your own children from the Christian faith in high school and college, you need to be intellectually engaged and sharing with them good arguments and evidence for the existence of God and the person of Christ. And let me take this moment to plug Dr. Craig's website, reasonablefaith.org, reasonablefaith.org. You can sign up on his mailing list, um, debates that you've had, mm -hmm. all the videos are there, articles yes. you've written, things. And, and if you want to grow in understanding of these things, certainly you can look at the different books he's written and, and then jump on Amazon and order those, that kind of thing, if you want to interface with that. But go to reasonablefaith.org to, to learn more, uh, because I think that would be a great tool uh, as a takeaway beyond our conversation here. So um, moving from, and is that one of the first kind of big rock conversations? Say I'm having a conversation with an atheist and I want to, I want to get to the point where I can share Jesus. Is the, the existence of God, is that my starting point, one of these arguments, or what, what, what might be a, well, a, a beginning point? Well, it depends on the person you're talking to. Okay. Um, some people are just simply apathetic, and they don't care about whether God exists or not. And with that person, it might not be effective to start off sharing sure. evidence for God's existence because they don't care. That's what I call apatheism okay. as opposed to <laughs> atheism. And with that person, you may need to try to awaken in that person an understanding of why the right. question of God's existence right. is so important. And here... I like to talk about the absurdity of life without God, and this exploits the insights of modern existentialism, uh, non-Christian philosophers who say that if there is no God, then life is ultimately absurd. There is no ultimate meaning, value, or purpose in human existence. 
uh, either for our lives as individuals or for the human race in general, which will eventually go extinct in the heat death of the universe. And so we can help to awaken a, a, a thirst or a need for God's existence by sharing that material. But then if the person is really inquiring and, and open, then I do think sharing certain evidences of God's right. existence and right. asking the, the non-believer, what do you think of this? Do you, I, I find this persuasive to you yeah. uh, and see if he does. Now, of course, if the person is not an atheist, if, he's, if he already believes that there's a God, a higher power, then you can just leapfrog sure. that and go straight to sure. the evidence of who is Jesus? Right. Who was this man? What do you think of him? Yeah. So you have to tailor your apologetic case to the individual that you're speaking with. And what's so beautiful, just listening and reflecting on your story for a moment, mm. this young lady that you tap on the shoulder, she just loved the Lord. Yeah. So you saw in her a love, a, a joy, a, something more that captured your attention right and so oh, just yes. the vibrantly abiding with christ and how important that is in our walk and how people see that is so vital yeah. so vital so uh let's talk about moving from god's existence let's talk about our existence mm -hmm. and why are views of creation the origin of life right i know dr tour is doing a lot of work in this space how how they're so vital in one's worldview and one's ability to accept a loving God and, and understanding our own meaning and identity. What, what is it about we move from God exists, now why do we exist? And, and we all tend to go back to, let's go back to the beginning in Genesis and the like. Why is that so vital? I think that the distinction between creator and creation is an absolute watershed. If there is no transcendent creator, then all that exists is space-time and its material contents. Okay. And there I would argue that on such a worldview that lacks a transcendent creator, there is no ultimate meaning, value, or purpose to humanity or to our individual lives, which it shows how important this question is. Now, with respect to the origin of life, um, the Bible teaches that God is the ultimate author of life. Right. In right. Genesis, God at first creates a, a desolate uninhabitable waste that in the Hebrew is called tohu wa bohu, an uninhabitable <laughs> waste. And then over the next six days is described how this is transformed into a suitable biosphere for humanity to inhabit. And so God is the ultimate source of biological life. Mm. Indeed, God himself is alive, mm. not in the biological sense, because he has no physical body, but he is alive in a non-physical sense. We could call it spiritual life, perhaps. Um, the most important oath in the Old Testament is, as the Lord lives, and then et cetera. Right, and sometimes right. God himself will say, as I live, says the Lord. Um, so the living God is uh, a very important concept. He is the ultimate source of life itself. But how he created biological life on earth, I think is a matter of relative unimportance theologically. Okay. Uh, as you mentioned, Professor Tour has done uh, work in this area, both published and, and uh, speaking on it. Right. And he would say, I think rightly, that as a scientist, um, 
that he would never say that it's impossible that life could have originated uh, naturally on this planet. For all we know, God could have orchestrated things so that the prebiotic chemicals would assemble in such a way as to make a self-replicating RNA molecule and all the rest to, to get to cellular life. So that as a scientist, he, he would simply say, I don't know. Um, we really don't understand how cellular life came to exist on this planet. Uh, and so I think it's a matter of great scientific interest. Sure. But I don't think there's a great deal of theological importance in how biological life came to exist. God is the sovereign creator and designer of the universe is free to use whatever means he chooses or no means at all and do it miraculously. Okay, that's good. Amen. So in your book, The Quest for the Historical Adam, a biblical and scientific exploration, you, you describe Genesis 1 through 11 as a different genre than the rest of the book of Genesis. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you take a comprehensive view of how the rest of Scripture looks at Adam, as well as the age of the earth, and you frame up a message to your readers. What is that message of this book? Because you, because the, the subtitle, Biblical and Scientific Exploration, yes. really significant, right? What is that message, and, and why is that subject important to you uh, with the research? And I think you have an event coming out in, in 2024, maybe a conversation around this with some others, I, I, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that as Christians, we are committed biblically to the historicity of a founding pair mm. of the entire human race called Adam and Eve. Right. And the question will be, is such a belief reconcilable with the data of modern science? And I think that when you properly understand the literary genre of the first 11 chapters of Genesis— that you will see that much of the language there is figurative hmm. uh, and metaphorical and not meant to be interpreted with a sort of wooden literalness. Okay. Uh, in the same way that the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is full of symbols and imagery and not to be interpreted with a sort of wooden literalism. Uh, and so I think that uh, the view that Adam and Eve uh, existed in the deep prehistoric past. I would say somewhere earlier than 750,000 years ago is completely compatible with the scientific evidence uh, from population genetics and uh, paleoanthropology, and that indeed, since the book appeared, there's been actually dramatic new evidence wow. that is confirmatory of the hypothesis that I suggest in the book. Okay. So, you, you talk, and then I saw an interview with you and Ben Shapiro, and you you mention how there's a resurgence of theists mm -hmm. in some of the hard sciences and in philosophy, but in the soft sciences, more at an emergent emergence of, of, of secularism. Uh, help us understand the potential movement. Uh, I'm sorry. So, so talking about science and faith. If those are reasonable to go together, yeah. what do you see uh, on the university campus? Because I, I found that fascinating, that what you're seeing in the academic realm yeah. uh, and why, why that's taking place. Well, I think contemporary physics in particular is open to the existence of a transcendent creator and designer of the universe uh, in a way that is unprecedented in, in recent history. 
The opposition tends to come in the sciences, that is to say, in the field of biology, um, where many of these evolutionary biologists take a sort of wooden, literalistic interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, And if you do take that sort of wooden literalism and believe that Genesis teaches that the world was created just a few thousand years ago, Uh, in six 24-hour consecutive days, then I think that view is irreconcilable with contemporary science. I I think it it would be hopeless to try to reconcile such a view with what we know about cosmology, biology, history, and and linguistics. Uh, And this is admitted by so-called young earth creationists, uh, and therefore they espouse what's called creation science, which is a completely different paradigm of science than what holds on the contemporary scene. I I mean, creation scientists are living in a different universe Mm. than most of us. So it's going to depend upon how you interpret uh, Genesis 1 to 11. And my claim is, and I defend this at length, that if we understand the type of literature that this is, that we will see that much of it is figurative and metaphorical and needn't be interpreted with a sort of wooden literality that would imply young earth creationism. Let's go back to God's existence. And I've heard you say that these lead to a monotheistic view mm-hmm. of God, right? Like when you when you go through these arguments, it's yes. going to lead you to a, a monotheistic worldview and one that most closely aligns potentially either with deism or Islam, Judaism, or Christianity. Help us understand that potential movement in someone's life. They come and they, they, they look at their existence, they look at God's existence, and now they have this maybe fork in the road. Do I, am I a deist? And I just, okay, I believe God exists, and he, he propelled this thing into the world. Or... I have to now investigate these things. What, maybe, what, what might you see in that journey with someone yeah. who's moving that if way? If someone proceeds in this sort of stepwise fashion, then he might begin as an atheist. Okay. For example, I saw a video of a young man recently where he was a vehement, angry, uh, anti-theist. And then as he began to explore, he said, I, I moved to a kind of openness to God, a kind of agnosticism, where I I didn't know whether or not God exists. And then he said, I moved to believing that there is a God, that God does exist. And then finally, he came to believe that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Mm. And so he went through this progression to come to faith. But I think that's not typical, Roger. I think that sometimes people will leapfrog over intermediate stages. One of my colleagues at Talbot has, I think, aptly remarked that if you can get a person across the Grand Canyon from atheism to theism, then it's just a little gulch to get across from theism to Christian theism. Okay. Uh, And so some people will simply make it the full leap. I've seen people come to Christ through the Kalam cosmological argument alone, just coming to believe that God exists, they are ready to give their lives to Christ. So it's going to depend upon the individual again. Some people can go in the stepwise fashion, 
but others will come more immediately to a knowledge of Christ because the Holy Spirit will speak to their hearts. And once they're open, then they'll respond to him. Looking at cultural trends, you, you describe people becoming more secular or more committed to the Christian life. Why is that? There's this, you said there's this softening of the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Let's understand what I mean by this. At the same time that we see increasing secularization in Western culture, including the United States, there's also a real resurgence of evangelical, biblical Christianity going on. But what's happening is the middle is emptying out. People who were in between are going either one direction or the other. And as a result, the traditional mainline denominations, like the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, the United Methodists, to a degree the Catholic Church, are bleeding membership, and their seminaries are closing or or coalescing Mm. uh, to keep the doors open. And the reason I think for this is that as I discovered as a non-believer, these nominally Christian mainline denominations are filled with people who don't really have a personal relationship with Christ. And what's happening, I think, is that people are realizing that there's no reason to get up in the dark and the cold (laughs) on a Sunday morning and go and worship somebody who really isn't there. Okay. And so these mainline denominations, which have this kind of nominal faith, a kind of cultural Christianity, are just emptying out currently. And one of the challenges for those of us who have a biblical faith is to try to reach these people so that they don't go from nominal Christianity into disbelief. Is that, is, do you think that contributes to what we hear is, is deconversion? I feel certain of it. Tell us that, about that, deconversion and well, what that is and what, a, a what's lot happening. Of people who gave nominal adherence to the Christian faith, for example, during the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, are now saying, well, I have no religious affiliation. And they're part of what are called the nuns, N-O-N-E. They don't have any particular affiliation. And I think that this is largely because of this decline, this catastrophic decline in these mainline denominations. It's, it's not so bad in evangelical churches um, like Southern Baptist churches, Church of the Nazarene, right. Free Methodist churches, right. uh, evangelical free churches. They're, they're, they're maintaining their roles and the percentage of the U.S. population that holds this Christian belief. But this deconversion especially is going on in the nominal mainline so Christian So going back to your story and what maybe we're seeing culturally, I would think it, it sounds like you're saying people are looking for both an authentic Jesus and an authentic people who follow Jesus. Yep. Maybe not perfect, but an authentic people who follow Jesus. Yes, that's right. Amen. Amen. So let, 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 us, let that be our journey, right? Mm-hmm. As we pursue our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, your heart was moved in worship this morning. I saw that as I just yeah. came over before we got up here. Um, your heart is that we represent the gospel of our Lord with both grace and truth. When we talk about Jesus, how might we represent him 
well. When we share Jesus with others, what things might we need to be prepared to defend or to address with someone who's a skeptic? And, and, and then how, right? Because communication is not just what you say, yes. but also how you say it. Well, that's very true. I, I, and I think that having some good arguments for why we believe that God has revealed himself, especially in Jesus, can help you not to be defensive right. when your faith is challenged. I find that the times I tend to get most defensive is when I don't have a good answer okay. to the criticisms. But if I'm prepared, then I, I enjoy going into the lion's den and, and, and don't feel defensive <laughs> or threatened and get my back up. And so I think it's really important for Christians to have good reasons for thinking that Jesus made radical personal claims whereby he put himself in the place of God himself mm. uh, and for which he was crucified as a blasphemer. And then secondly, I think good historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by means of which God publicly and dramatically confirmed those allegedly blasphemous claims for which he was crucified. Mm. So if we can substantiate or give evidence of those two facts, that's sufficient for thinking that Christianity mm. is true and that one should place one's confidence in Jesus. Um, now, there are certainly other questions that are burning in our culture. I think probably the most important would be, how can Jesus Christ be the only way okay. to God? Okay. Uh, religious relativism is rampant in our culture, and the idea that Christ alone is the way of salvation is deeply offensive to many people. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be able to give an account of what I would call Christian particularism, that Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And so why would you say he is? Unpack that briefly. I, I, the reason that he is the only way is because Christ alone has died to pay the penalty for the sins of all of us Amen. before a just and holy God. Amen. Only Jesus Christ has satisfied the demands of God's justice, which frees up um, God to then offer us a pardon mm. of our sins and reconciliation with himself. And so if you reject Christ, you reject that satisfaction that he has offered to God for your sins, and you fall back on his justice. Mm. And, and we know where you stand there. Right, right. So, so someone wrestling with faith right now, they've got to come to the place you came to and just go, yeah, I get it. I'm a sinner, right? Yes. I have sinned against a holy God. What, what are my solutions for that? I can try to get better, or someone <laughs> needs to pay the penalty for myself. Yes. And yes. so Either the atonement. I, I do it myself, or I find a substitute. Right. And who else can be your substitute right. to bear the sins of the world before a, a just and holy God? Mm. There is no one Only else. Only God himself. Right. Yes, exactly. Because, you're, you're right to emphasize that. It's because Jesus is not merely human, but divine, that he could satisfy the demands of God's justice. No merely human being could do that. You know, I, I was at a lady's bedside this week who the Lord's about to call her home. Mm. And I wanted to visit before where, where she still was able to, to communicate and, and, uh, but she's, she's a week or two away from, yes. from this time where, where, and I just got to encourage her and her family 
um, because of the resurrection of Christ, because he has conquered sin and death, the gift that is to us, especially in our final moments, mm. I've re- I said to her, I said, uh, I said, where you're going, I want to go. Here's what it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul says, this is better by far. Yes. Not by a little, but by <laughs> far, right? And um, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Wherever Jesus was, things that were dead came to life. I mean, just like this is the beauty of the gospel. As we close out our time, why is the resurrection of Jesus so fundamentally important to the Christian teaching the Christian faith to our own hearts and lives. I think that it ratifies and confirms Jesus' atoning death for our sins. Um, If a criminal uh, has fully served his sentence in jail, Mm -hmm. if justice has been satisfied, then it would be unjust to continue to incarcerate him. He has to be released. Justice demands it. In exactly the same way, having fully satisfied on our behalf the demands of divine justice by dying in our place, Jesus has to be raised from the dead because justice has been satisfied. To continue in a state of death would be unjust. unjust. And so the resurrection is like the other side of the coin of the crucifixion and atoning death of Christ. If the death has been efficacious in satisfying the demands of divine justice, then the resurrection must occur. And so the evidence for the resurrection, which is surprisingly good, historically speaking, goes to confirm the efficacy um, of Christ's atoning death on our Mm. behalf and gives us confidence that in fact pardon uh, and reconciliation is available through faith in Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do one last thing for us. We're going to pray, and then Dr. Major is going to come and lead us in a song. We'll, we'll slip down here. But would you just pray for these people, and then these that are going to watch this online, would you mind just sure. praying God's hand and blessing upon sure. them? Sure. I'd be happy thank to. You. Father, thank you for this conversation this morning about these issues that matter. And we pray that as we have thought about these things this morning, we might continue to reflect upon them uh, during the week, and that through your Holy Spirit, you would guide us into all truth. And for anyone who has not yet come to faith in Christ and to knowledge of yourself, we pray that you would use the things we've talked about this morning to open that person's heart and to bring him to a personal knowledge of yourself. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and for sending your Son to die on our behalf that we might be reconciled to you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.